Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. On today's show, we are doing some interdimensional traveling, protecting the spirit realm, and caping up. Today, we are watching Doctor Strange. My name is Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch. We watch them from our vantage as ministers, as theologians, and as people who love movies. Then we gather for a conversation with our guests. In our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, our guest, Chaz Howard, uh, will justify why we are watching Doctor Strange and what it has to do with life and ministry, theology, and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Doctor Strange for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be December 4th, the second Sunday in Advent. And in our third segment, Post-Lose, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or reading or following. Before we go too far down the line, we want to introduce our special guest for today's show. Chaz Howard is the university chaplain at the University of Pennsylvania in wonderful Philadelphia. He is an author and a teacher and a lover of superhero movies. His work, uh, his newest work, Pond River Ocean Rain, is coming out on Abingdon Press in January. Go buy it and support Chaz. Last time, Chaz assigned the newest Marvel movie, Doctor Strange, for us to watch. So now we're here. Chaz, thanks for being here. It is a joy and honor to be with y'all, man. Special shout out to Andover Newton up there in Newton Center. Great to be on Technicolor Jesus. I like I like the opening. Pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Man, you got flow. I like that. <laughs> smooth. Y'all are smooth. Thanks, DJ Pizzeria, yeah. MC right. Matt, man. Y'all are smooth. <laughs> I like it. All right. Thanks. So did you guys know that there was this thing called the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Anyway, I... I I'm not enough of a comic book guy to be able to give this character the introduction that he probably deserves, but uh, we're at 312 movies deep into the MCU, and so it's now Phase 3, where we are expanding our roster of heroes to include Captain Marvel, Spider-Man, Black Panther, and the titular hero of this week's movie, Dr. Stephen Strange. Dr. Strange starts the film as basically Gregory House, a highly skilled and world-class neurosurgeon who's also kind of a jerk. After being in a jerk-related car accident, he loses his fine motor skills and his hands, and therefore his professional viability. Wisdom. Yeah. And then he takes a page from the first act of Batman Begins and goes on the kind of orientalist voyage of discovery that apparently rich white guys go on just before they become superheroes. (laughs) (laughs) As as, as these things go, he ends up somewhere in Nepal under the tutelage of a sorcerer called the Ancient One. He learns about mirror dimensions and cosmic energies. He finds a cloak of levitation with its own sense of humor. And then he battles to save the planet from being eaten by an interdimensional MacGuffin. So basically, it's a superhero movie. But it's got some character. It's got some really trippy effects. So, Chaz, like, are we high? Or does this movie actually have something to say about ministry in the church? It was, a, it was a fantastic summary. It was, it was beautiful, man. It was rich. Are we high? It, it feels like um, that old Disney movie where Mickey Mouse steals the sorcerer's hat, like Fan, Fantasia or something so, yeah. like that. Like real, there's there's some real trippy scenes in there. That uh, even, I think even Doctor Strange thinks at some point he's drugged in there. He's like, "What did you just give me?" So there are this weird 
kind of kind of roller coaster, and it right. comes back to. Um, but what's it have to do with pastoring? Man, it, it's got like everything to do with pastoring. Like, like all the best stories do. Um, it, it really captures the the human journey uh, from from ne- from where we are now to perhaps what God wants us to be in our purpose and our calling. Wait, say more about that because I that that's intriguing to me. But I want I want to hear you spell it out. I mean, so so you think about the the you know talking to you know, one of you guys is teaching in, in seminary right now, you know, you think about the journey of the person who feels a tug on their heart to go into ministry, whether that's pastoring or chaplaincy or missions or, or professorship, whatever. Um, and there's something within, but it takes a few steps to get there. And sometimes that's seminary. Sometimes that's sort of getting under the tutelage of, of, of a trusted mentor, kind of, kind of your own personal ancient one. And over the course of, of, of a couple of years, that hero, that pastor, that call within you emerges, which which is isn't always easy, isn't always what we think it's going to look like. Um, but but a lot of us go on this journey, not just for ministers. I mean, I think this is part of the journey from adolescence to adulthood, kind of uh, to personhood, which which is part of what I think resonates so much about these comic book journeys of people becoming their better selves, um, or in the case of villains, becoming their worst selves. Um, and I think the thing that's cool about Strange, though, is, is that it's a little more accessible. I mean, you, you get these like you know, Iron Man is so smart. Tony Stark is, is is this genius billionaire that is 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 kind of an every guy in one way, but it's hard to relate to. Captain America is a super you know muscular dude who starts out as scrawny but ends up the super serum. Hulk is just whatever he is, um, and then kind of you know Superman's this alien, Batman's this sort of tragic. But Doctor Strange is this. Yeah, he's a doctor. But he's this kind of nerdy guy. He's not super strong. He's pretty smart, but he's not inaccessibly smart. And he, and he has this tragedy that kind of gets in the way of everything. And a lot of us have had seemingly paralyzing tragedies that ultimately can be a part of the journey toward who we're supposed to be. And I think that's part of what's so appealing uh, about about Strange. So it's interesting you say that. Um, there's a, a famous saying from the preacher Gardner Taylor. Ah, the dean, <laughs> the dean, um, where he would he would listen to young preachers, and and they would ask him, "Well, Doctor Taylor, what would you think?" And he'd say, "Well, you don't have any blood on your preaching," and it was it was his way of saying like you've not experienced some of the tragedies of life. You've actually yes. haven't given bled enough mm. in order to mm. sort of get how deep and important this practice is. And I think it's interesting that strange, it, it really does begin with tragedy yeah. and the, the hope is that he can get his hands back. But yet as the audience and as the people at, um, you know, the interdimensional seminary, <laughs> they seem to know that if getting your hands back is actually not, the goal. Yeah. There's something much bigger. There's something greater. There's, there's something that, um, and that's contrasted with the guy that he meets who tells him where to go, who's still like playing basketball under an overpass and in Brooklyn or something like that. That guy, he just wanted his legs back and he was, he figured out a way to get his legs back and then, uh, abandoned all of the responsibility that might come with this newfound power. It, it, it's such a beautiful 
First of all, mm-hmm. we, we should open up a school called Interdimension, Interdimensional Seminary, which I think would be <laughs> so popular. It'd be awesome. <laughs> I don't know where we'd put it, but it'd be really cool. <laughs> but, you know, over the weekend, my um, my three daughters watched uh, Princess and the Frog, that Disney movie mm-hmm. with uh, Princess Tiana in it. Yeah. And, you know, spoiler alert, but they, you know, they, they turn into frogs and they find Mama Odie in the woods. Right. And they ask this kind of, you know, which, you know, sort of magical Mama Odie to turn them back into to humans because that's what they think they need. Um, but it turns out that it wasn't so much being this, the wish to turn from frogs back to humans that they really needed, but they needed was something a little bit deeper that the prince sort of needed to kind of not be so materialistic and find love there, that, that Tiana needed to not just be this kind of workaholic who had this one goal of being a restaurant. She needed love. What they needed was love. And once they found love, everything kind of came out around that too. It's very similar that at the you know the ancient one seminary the interdimensional seminary that it wasn't the kind of fixed hands it's kind of tremor tremor broken hands fixed isn't exactly what strange needed he needed to kind of become selfless he needed to stop doing the work for himself where he needed to kind of you know shed his ego he needed to care about other people and you see that happen over the course of the uh of the film but but i think each of the characters have that story too you know wong his kind of assistant has that story um, and, and so many other heroes kind of have had that journey where it's not just about getting the thing that you so long for back. There's something much deeper in, in your, your hero's journey. Well, one of the things that the director and screenwriter have talked about is that this movie is kind of a movie about healing. And I, mm. and I, I wonder of, if that might dovetail a bit with what y'all are talking about. I mean, he, he breaks his hands. He goes on a search for to heal his hands, he finds this, and its official name is Kamartage, uh, the interdimensional seminary somewhere in the, well in, in the well Himalayas. Yeah, I had to look it up 10 minutes ago, so it's fresh in my mind. <laughs> and, uh, awesome. But but then it, it the, the film actually puts him to work as a healer, even in the end, right? Where as opposed to the sequences in so many other superhero films where the city is destroyed, and the superheroes are are participating somewhat in the like the raising of whether it's New York or London or um, Sokovia at the end of uh, Age of Ultron. Here, he's actually participating in healing Hong Kong. That the the interdimensional monster has broken the city, and Strange participates in rewinding time so that those buildings are reassembled. There's this thread about. Um, about healing that I thought gave this film a really interesting kind of personality. It's, it's, a, it's a great point, man. I mean, he, the fact that he doesn't change his name. I mean, so he's Dr. Stephen Strange at the beginning of the movie. I mean, it's a pretty good name, name is, to be a superhero it's with. Strange. I mean, you know, if his name was like, <laughs> I don't know, Max, he might've done something else. I don't know. Dr. Smith. Does that name Adam Hurlson. <laughs> That's a super name though. That's a super name though. Don't <laughs> But but he's still Doctor Strange, and doctors are healers. And and again, unlike other heroes who who, who assume these kind of different superhero names, the Hulk, Iron Man, the Black Panther, other other sort of cool names that are almost a different person. So this is almost um, contrary to what we were saying earlier. Strange does become someone new, but he ultimately becomes his true self that was already there in the beginning, and that true self was a healer, which is at some point why he went into medicine in the first place and at some point why he goes into um, the profession, the vocation of being, kind of being a hero, being the sorcerer supreme, is to heal. You're right. It's not so much to 
fight bad guys and evil. It's he ultimately heals a city, heals relationships, um, heals cool places. So, so would you would you use would either of you use this movie to preach about heroism? I mean, it's a it's you know we have this whole pantheon of the the, the superhero now, but I think we're kind of figuring out that maybe there are some different shades and colors to what that means. Yeah, so I think that I mean to recognize that there's with so many of the superhero movies, there's all sorts of collateral damage, and in this movie, there is this repair. Uh, yeah. There is this healing yeah. that yeah. happens. It's pretty interesting, and it's by winding things back, right? Uh, which reminds me, Chaz and I have uh, are part of this cohort that uh, has that like has been meeting with rabbis in Israel and other places, and um, and a major section of Jewish contemporary Jewish theology is built around tikkun olam, this idea of of world repair, okay. and. And in some ways, that world repair is really um, trying to understand how everything has been fractured and then repairing that, stitching it back together and trying. And so I think that this movie is kind of interesting in the sense that it is trying to like, there are these like rifts between universes, right? And in some ways, that is the source of a lot of power. But in other ways, it is the place where you're also trying to heal things. You have to like, um, and could you think of those risks as wounds that then the, that strange has to heal, which is interesting because there's that moment really early in the movie when they're talking about what their purpose is as these sort of soldiers or heroes. And they say, well, you know, the Avengers, they do, uh, they protect the material world and we protect the spiritual world. Preach, preach. But I don't, but, but as I think about that, I mean, what does it mean to protect the spiritual world now? Yeah. Like, do we, can we do that? I, I'm reminded that I, questions of spiritual warfare, especially were really present in my own upbringing. Like, they talk, people talk about that a lot. Yeah. And then I went to seminary and I got a PhD and I sort of abandoned a lot of that talk. And now as I'm further along in my own, I think, spiritual maturity, there's some, there's some impulse in me to retrieve some of that. Yeah, and I don't yeah. know how. Is deep, Matt, Matt, such a good question. I think at first your question to like, are, you know, would you preach about heroism um, drawing from this film? My first answer is going to be, I'm not sure that everyone is called to be a public hero. Right. Um, you know, in, in, in comics, like like an Avenger, like a Justice League kind of, I'm not sure everyone's called to be in that. I'm not sure everyone's called to be a superhero. In in kind of our world, I'm not sure everyone's called to be a, a cop, a firefighter, a doctor, and, you know, that sort of profession, if those are kind of the heroes of our world. But after Adam's answer, I, I mean, the parallel to Tikkun Olam is, is such a beautiful one. And are only some people called to that work? I don't think so. I do think all of us are called to this kind of repairing of the world work in different ways. Um, there are people who have larger platforms uh, that do bigger scale world repairing, you know, world premieres, major public figures, people with great resources do a different type of world repairing than a preschool teacher does. Not any more important either way, either, either space. 
but but all that is repairing the world, you know, engaging a kid, putting them on the right path, being a good parent, cleaning up your block, working for world peace between nations. This is all world repairing. And I do think that we are all called to be world repairing heroes in different lanes. That makes sense. I mean, it's, it's such a cool connection you, you two made there. When we uh, that'll preach, that'll when, preach right there. When, when we moved to Virginia and we and we joined the local gym, we were um, my wife was also a clergy, and, and I were, were offered the uh, the heroes discount as clergy, which apparently nice. applies to police and firefighters and vets and I, I, probably medical professionals and clergy. So, for like what it's that. worth. And I want to affirm you're working out too, man. Your shoulders are looking great, dude. I see it right there. Just well done. That's good. Super. I said, I, said, drop you I said we joined the gym. That's about all I can say. <laughs> Matt, you look shredded right now. Diesel. Diesel. <laughs> so one of my one of my concerns, I guess it's a it's dovetailing a bit from what Adam was saying about how to think about this film in the church has to do with this idea of the mirror dimension. So, you know, the, the film sets out this kind of matrixy uh, logic where we're in one dimension and these sorcerers can access the mirror dimension where lots of crazy special effects happen and you can fight in really interesting, beautiful ways. But the rule is that kind of when you leave the mirror dimension, it, it doesn't actually affect the real world. Uh, and the, of course, the, the building crescendo at the end of this film is that the bad guys have, are playing in the real world and not just in the mirror dimension, which has been the kind of safe place uh, playground for a while. And, I, and I, I wonder, I guess, my concern is that sometimes we treat the church like it's mirror dimension, right? Like we go into church and we can use all of this cosmic language and we can talk about spiritual warfare one way or another adam and then we know that when the service is over that we kind of go back to our regular routine and the rules go back to normal and there's so little impact so i, I that's um when as we think about it's deep yeah i'm not even sure there's a question there but it's the part of the image that is stuck with me from this film is what happens when the stuff that we talk about in the mirror dimension actually becomes real. And what, how do we change if we have to treat it as not necessarily a, a strict barrier, but something that can leak? It's, there's two thoughts that popped in my mind when you said that, man. I, I think you're right that there, um, my kids used to listen to this thing called Salty, the singing songbook. I don't know if any yes. of you guys you know, I grew Salty. Up on Salty. Salty's the man. It's, yeah. He's this, this like giant blue book who sings these like hymns. And he's named Salty because he's a salter and he's full of some whatever. And and at one of the episodes, he has these like his kids who are there and they talk about, you know, dad, you know, why is it that we're so nice on Sunday mornings and, and we're, you know, we're talking to each other kindly, but the rest of the week we're fighting and, and sort of, you know, not being rude and, and not being kind and reverent. And, and I think it speaks a little bit what you're talking about, Matt, there too, that there is this Sunday morning existence, um, this is an old preaching thing. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're in church on Sunday, you know, Saturday night, we're partying in the club, right. Sunday morning, we're kind of doing a whole different thing there. And I think there's a lot to unpack about the complexity of the human experience and how it's not necessarily contradictory or completely different dimensions that humans are, can hold a lot. And we can party and listen to hard rap and love gospel at the same time. Sure. But, but there are these different planes almost 
that we can spiritualize stuff and then kind of look at it on a worldly level, or we can be our Sunday best suit, big hat, or we can kind of be in like t-shirt and, and, and doing whatever we do. The flip of that though, there's this great storyline uh, that Dr. Strange was actually involved with in the comic books. Um, he was on this, he, he's not so much of a group guy um, in the last several years, but he, which you can see in the, in the movie, but he's in this group called the new Avengers and the kind of Illuminati and this ongoing storyline that crossed over with the actual Avengers main book and some other books was these different earths, these parallel earths were all getting ready to kind of bump into each other. Um, something had messed up in the universe that these different parallel worlds that are just like ours right now with our alternate alternate reality selves are all colliding and destroying one another unless you can stop these catastrophes from happening. And so Strange and others in, in kind of his Illuminati team, including Iron Man and Panther and some other folks, would go and visit these other worlds over here and see their alternate selves, hmm. how life could have played out hmm. if they made yeah. slightly different decisions, um, which, which, is fan, which is deep. And so there's some realities where you know, um, the Fantastic Four isn't the Fantastic Four because Sue Richards chose to kind of be married to Dr. Doom, very different role. Or the X-Men aren't the X-Men because it's Magneto who, who founds the group and Professor X is this villain and they're the M-Men. It's a whole like kind of different small decisions. The whole notion that you were talking about, Matt, is yeah, I think about not only our best selves on Sunday and kind of who we are the rest of the week, but who we could be if we make slightly different decisions, either from the past or like in the future. Uh, you know, we kind of always imagine ourselves going back to school and becoming a lawyer and having a different career in this kind of alternate reality, this kind of different time space continuum over here that seems far away. But actually, we could kind of turn into if we make a couple different choices. And it might not just be professional, it could be behavioral, it could be spiritual, that these different dimensions that Strange and, and other folks from uh, the seminary can can travel to they can all become one. They can all become integrated into one human being if we if we make the choice. Hmm. That was a big nerd nerd rant there. <laughs> no, I like it. I'm so good. Lost in like multiple dimensions. Uh, but I, I don't know. My if girls, should... my girls are going to tease me mercilessly after watching this. <laughs> Matt's weighing his next choice because in some dimension he's going to make the opposite choice. Yeah. Well, I figure. If, if we go enough dimensions, I'm going to make all the choices. And so it doesn't really matter. I can just go straight ahead. I guess I don't want to Great. leave our main discussion here without giving us a chance to talk a little bit about about race and depiction and Orientalism. Uh, this film got a lot of heat before it came out for the casting of Tilda Swinton as this Celtic version of the Ancient One, who was uh, originally supposed to be a Tibetan figure from the comics. And Chaz, you may know more about this than I do, because I have, don't have the tread with the comics. Uh, there were rumors that Marvel didn't want to do a Tibetan figure because of its reliance on Chinese box office. So I'm just kind of curious how like the... The, the film's depiction of race and especially around her character and that this kind of whole orientalist idea of going up into the Central Asian mountains to find oneself, uh, yeah. how that sat with you all. Did, does it feel, did it feel honest? Did it feel appropriately distanced? What, how did it sit? I think by attaching itself to the origin story that had been pre-programmed, a long time ago, Marvel boxed itself in into this binary in which it wouldn't win. Um, because on the one hand, you can whitewash a 
figure who is traditionally Asian uh, by casting a white person. On the other hand, continually to only cast Asian folks as sort of wise masters and senseis is to stereotype them in this, in a particular role and, and stereotype them. And so I think Marvel was at a, as that a, had a problem because they couldn't think outside this binary, right? They couldn't, they couldn't imagine this story without this character or without yeah. this sort of move. And, and because so, because of that, they weren't going to find a, a place that, um, that would satisfy everyone. And then they're also thinking about all of the people who are like combing over the story tooth I mean, with a fine tooth comb to see whether or not it is, um, you know, honors the original. So I, I think there was a lot of different people that they had to figure out. That said, I think that all of the people who are are criticizing them are right. <laughs> they yeah. they did make these decisions and they made them specifically um, because they wanted to honor this origin story without thinking that maybe the origin story had some racism inherent to it and therefore had to be changed. I think you're absolutely right. It, it really was a, a no-win situation. The, the, these stories and, and so many others, for example, black characters in Marvel and DC all emerged in, in a really complex time when society, our American society was very inexperienced in discussing and playing out race in public and in literature. And so, I mean, so you're right that to, to cast the ancient one as a wise old sage from, from, you know, from, from Asia, from Nepal with this long beard, like he was in the original character in the original comic book, it, it goes, it plays into that stereotype that all Asians are sort of wise, um, unless they are kind of villain goons who, who are kind of getting beat up in, in certain fighting things. But the same thing happens in Iron Fist, where kind of the, the, the white lost character goes over and, and, and finds this ancient city and, and has this, and turns to the Iron Fist and comes back with the best of, of that culture there, um, which is problematic. On the other hand, just like you said, Adam, too, there, it, it's strange though that, see what I did there? It's strange. It's strange though that, that, <laughs> that they, we critique the, the changing of the ancient one's characters. I understand why to a white woman, but Mordo also is, is, is typically depicted as an Asian character too, and was as portrayed as a black man, um, it's not super clear where he's from, if he's African-American or from North Africa. I mean, it's not super duper clear there. I, I do think transitioning from a person of color to another person of color comes out a little bit differently um, than whitewashing someone. Um, had she not done such a good job, too, I think people would be even more frustrated. Um, that, the last little thing I'll say about that, all of Marvel Comics has been doing this in the comics, too, of changing the race or gender of major characters. And I think they have the right to do that, to reinvent themselves. It's, it's not a perfect parallel with what we've done with Hamilton. Cause I think Hamilton was much more explicit about it. It was an obvious thing um, that was meant to be a statement in itself, but turning Thor into a woman, Spider-Man uh, is, is a young black sort of Dominican kid. Um, and, and there's 12 other examples too. They're not changing these characters. They're adding new characters, which is an important detail. But they're reimagining what could 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 be, and I think that's part of the gift of fiction. The gift of of literature is to reimagine and retell the story. We do this with depictions of Christ. Um, again, not a perfect parallel, but it creates different access. And so I think to ramble on a little bit more, 
it's not the other interesting thing about the ancient one not just transitioning from an from an asian person to a white person but from a man to a woman is profound that that the main teacher of dr strange isn't a wise old man but a very complex woman who teaches him um which i think is neat and i think a missed detail though that we've missed uh in, in kind of looking at the movie well, thank both. Thanks to both of you. Let's uh, let's move on to the lectionary a little bit. This segment is called "Preaching to the Choir." It's we're going to look at the lectionary passages for uh, Year A, December fourth, this coming Sunday, Advent two. Advent two is generally speaking a Sunday for John the Baptist. This year is no different. We have Matthew's account of the Baptist, including his tirade against the Sadducees and Pharisees. We also have Isaiah 11 on the root from the stump of Jesse, and we have Paul's invocation of that same passage in Romans 15. So Chaz and Adam, as you think about Dr. Strange, does anything in there help illuminate these passages for you? You know, John the Baptist isn't a great parallel with the ancient one, but he's such a character. He's such a really rich, complex character. Um, who is, is is kind of a hero in his own right, a superhero in his own right. And he's, he's you know, clearly speaking truth to power and is different from everyone else and had this unique kind of journey to become who he was. But he does play a role in, in Christ's movement to his kind of public ministry there. And so in that sense, he does have this parallel with the ancient one. I do think it's important for us all to identify and connect with John the Baptist's ancient ones, others in our lives who can help affirm the gifts that God has put in us. You know, sort of, you know, John the Baptist is sort of baptizing the Lord and 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 and, and the voice of the divine speaks. This is my son and whom I will please. You know, that that's that's there later in the story. And the ancient one sort of sees something in Strange too, mm -hmm. that I, I think you could be something very special, um, and he affirms this gift in him. In all of our journeys, to use Philly language, it's nice to have somebody who will put a body on you, mm -hmm. who who sees something in you. Um, there's this a bit of a tangent. There's a study that came out of Princeton University that asked a question of why so few women were going into um, student government and leadership positions on campus. And so just for a number of years, most of the student council presidents were men, head of their newspaper were men, class leaders were, were sort of were guys with very few exceptions. And what they found was the only women who went into leadership in these positions tend to have someone come up to them and say, you know what, I think you'd be great for student government. Or did you ever think about applying for a Rhodes Scholarship? Because I see that in you. I, I think there's a lot to unpack around sexism and kind of other stuff there. But but it's a cool reminder that's nice to have somebody put a body on you. And, and then for us to do that to someone else, for us to be ancient ones, for us to be John the Baptist, for us to kind of be a, a mentor, uh, a sponsor who can kind of identify and see God's gifts in other people um, and affirm that. Cool. You know, that's so interesting to say. I I think the church has in some ways lost that role. It's forgotten that role. And so that anytime someone is talented and young and looks like they might be possibly be any good at ministry, 
the church goes, uh, well, well, we'll let them figure it out on their own rather than saying to them, like, we've thought about being a minister. Mm. And so many of the people I know in seminary now, it's because someone at some point said to them, have you thought about doing ministry? You'd be why really you good think, at it. Right. When did we stop? Why do you think we stopped affirming people like that? I'm not totally sure. I think I think we recognize ministry as being this sort of unique calling that someone has to hear themselves. It's almost like Doctor Strange in the sense that they have to like they have to walk up the mountain themselves in order for it's them deep. to actually mean it. When mm. in actuality, like a lot of people I know were led up that mountain. Yeah, I mean, I, I not just once, but like it, it took multiple people to kind of to to drive that nail deep enough into my head that I felt like this was the right thing to do. Uh, you know, I'm curious. I, I think a lot. Of, I suspect a lot of it has to do with this kind of American gospel of self determination too, and that that like we need we need to let our kids and our young adults find their own path. And find their own way, which is true, but doesn't also preclude us from being able to put bodies on people and say, like, I see this in you. And I see this in your your journey. I mean, I'm thinking about that phrase, the root of Jesse. Um, and you know, and I meet students from time to time who are like, yeah, you know, my dad, my grandfather, my, my mom is, is a minister. Um, and you know, I don't, there's mixed feelings around family businesses and kind of doing what your what your folks did. Yeah. But I, I do think there is something too, maybe generational callings and things that kind of get passed down. I think a lot of people who are clergy have other clergy or deeply uh, people of strong faith in their family too. And it's cool to name that as well. That something God's had His hand on God's hand God's hand has been on your family in some cool, neat ways. Maybe it's you too. Uh, that comes with some heavy pressure and all kind of <laughs> right, psychological right. stuff. That sure, sure. That. But, but when you hear that at the right time, the right time, then it can feel like, oh, right, this is being passed down. I'm receiving an inheritance rather than receiving a burden. And, uh, yeah, and I think maybe that's also part of this problem is that the the church knows that sometimes you can say that stuff and it doesn't, and the person's not ready to hear it and trying to decipher when a person is ready to hear this stuff can be really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Adam, as you, uh, as, as you look at these lectionary passages, what, what's, what stands out to you? Uh, so I was reading the lectionary passages, especially the more prophetic stuff. I was reminded of, this little joke that continues to show up in Dr. Strange over and over again, where someone put the warnings after the instructions. Right. right? And so they keep, they keep laughing about this, right? That, about that. That why would you put the warnings after the instructions? <laughs> and, and I was reading that in light of John the Baptist and the Isaiah passage that are warnings of a sense. Um, they are prophecies. Here are the consequence of what's going on. And, um, and as I think about that, uh, Advent contains all of this consequence. And John and Isaiah and all of the prophets before them are seeing through a glass dimly, to use Paul's language, 
about what that's going to look like. And so they come up with all of these warnings. And yet, Advent is this way to talk about all of the consequence that even the prophets can't imagine. Like things are going to change. They're going to change really dramatically. And that the prophetic speech comes with some warning about all of the things that are going to change. Yet even they don't have the whole picture, in part because they're living within history. And so their hopes and their dreams are commensurate with what they believe history can give. And what's wild to me about Advent and about the incarnation in general is that it, it is totally incommensurate with history. Mm. There has been nothing like this. So even our dreams, which are born of our experience in a particular place, in a particular time, according to particular traditions, will never fully um, capture that which is to come. And in that way, the warnings are always written after the instructions, right? Like the fact that we, I, I think about these, these ancient books that they're writing in, right? Well, they write all of these instructions and then something bad happens. <laughs> it's not like they can then go put pages back beforehand and say, well, here's the warning of what's going to happen. It's that they only know what bad thing is going to happen after they actually do this stuff. Yes. And so the warning actually has to come after the end, after the instructions. And so the warnings are written after because it's in the doing that we realize the true consequence of our actions mm -hmm. and our hopes and our dreams. Um, and so it's in the incarnation, it is in Advent that we finally realize that what, I mean, the limits of our own hopes, but also the limits of our imaginations that need to be broadened in order to make room for this new thing, this thing that history could never have predicted. Oh, that was good, man. I like it. So, I, so that's, that's part of it. And then, I, I mean, there's also, I was thinking a lot about like rules too, because John's sort of a kind of a rule dude. He's kind of pretty rigid guy. Yeah. And if you, if, if you think about the historical work around John and whether or not he was part of the Essene community and especially sort of radical and rigid sect of Judaism at the time, they had all of these very specific rules about how to live. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Strange is really about rules in a lot of ways and when they're fungible and when you have to live to the, live up to them and when you can break them and when you can't break them. And that becomes a major part of Advent too, which is in what way is the incarnation breaking a lot of the rules that we thought were um, totally rigid and unbreakable? I'm thinking about this term hope. I mean, Adam, you, you use the phrase dreams and hopes a couple of times. And, you know, I love that, that phrase, uh, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make its path straight. And, the, and this notion of kind of us, the Advent journey, as, as a church every year preparing the way for the Lord and kind of our hope of, of light coming in darkness, especially during kind of what's been a hard year in the world in the U.S. in 2016, kind of our hope that maybe the light of Christ will somehow heal and somehow change everything. Um, and, and as you were talking, I was trying to think like the role of hope in, in the movie and strange who's a man of science does have this deep faith, but really this deep abiding hope 
that he's going to get healed somehow. He's going to, the ancient one's going to sort of zap him and fix his hands and, and, and give him a new life to be a, a physician, a practicing surgeon. Again, he has this deep hope. And then once he kind of becomes Dr. Strange, the hero, there's this hope that he's going to be able to stop Mordo and Dormammu and kind of the whole end of the, of the world and that whole, that whole thing there too. I think it's important for us to preach hope also. Um, which is oddly something I didn't think a lot about leading up to the election. Um, I, I think it was more of a fear that a lot of us were holding on to, whether it was fear of one candidate being elected or fear of the other candidate be electing, being elected, or now a fear of what our president-elect may or may not do um, in kind of survival mode, as opposed to hope in whatever form that, that takes, whether it's hope in the president-elect or hope in the kind of resistance movement that's kind of you know manifesting or hope in something bigger, or in case of Christmas, something smaller that that can bring about miracles and bring about that world repair uh, that we're holding out hope every single year for. How about you, Matt? No, I'm just thinking about a healer who can be a hero, and what that what that means Christologically. I'm in a totally different place now. I, Deeped. I had I had other thing that it feels like inconsequential compared, but I was I was thinking about just the the long tradition of dangerous books. Um, you know, Paul says to the Romans that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. In this passage from fifteen, I was thinking about um, in a, kind of a little bit off of what you were saying, Adam. The uh, this long tradition in the library at Camartage of the the books that are intrinsically not to be read. Um, because, because they can't be trusted because you can, yes. because you can destroy things if you read those books, which is, you know, Preach. which is, which is old deep monastic stuff, right? Like you are not worthy of opening these books because you can tear up the world if you do it. And I've seen, you know, mm. like I could cite you Star Trek Deep Space Nine episodes where this comes in. Like this is, this is, this is pretty commonplace stuff, but right. I gotta say like, as a child of the Reformation, I find it pretty objectionable. Like, I think people should read more books. And so this, this, uh, you know, Paul is kind of on my wavelength a little bit here. Like, whatever was written was written for us. It was written for our instruction. Uh, and there's, um, there's something that strikes me as being not helpful about this recurring verse of telling people that that book is not right for them. Uh, so I'm all in for the dangerous books and, uh, maybe, maybe there's some, maybe there's some hope in there too. If you read these books, you can destroy stuff. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Like, yeah, you might, yeah. Destroy the systems and powers of the world. Maybe, uh, the, right. So, so like they could be dangerous, but I think, and, and it, it should be dangerous, I guess, but not necessarily therefore restricted. It's like the stuff that's on the the closed locked up shelf that we don't want you to read feels uh, like a library I don't want to be a part of. Yeah, I fully agree. I I think it's interesting too, that this movie is also playing with ideas of, of what you can actually learn in books. So strange is always reading, right? And he wants more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge. But ultimately the thing that he learns is this like moment of deep self-sacrifice. And it's not anything that he learned in any book. It's, what he learned via relationship. It's what he's learned via some sort of community and practice. And, and I think that there's a nice tension between those two things, right? Which is that like our access to these books can teach us so much, 
Um, but it can also come at the expense of all of these other important relationships that are also teachers. And so I like that this movie has like three or four different levels of teachers yeah. and seems to recognize that all of them have a role to play in ultimately the formation of Strange into a hero. It's actually what I thought was the weakest part of the film was the, the like, it felt like a movie that needed a training montage. And it doesn't have one. There's like the, there's like there's a moment where there's like an ellipsis of time that it just gets glossed over. And I think yeah. it's because yeah. the the training is actually him reading these stacks of books. And not it's not the final lesson. Of course, there's all the sacrificial stuff you're talking about. But the the training is him reading these stacks of books over and over and over again. And it doesn't make for good visual. And so they kind of elide it. But there is this like he disappears one day and the next day he comes back and he's the grand wizard of everything. And I and I, I needed. I needed a kind of Rocky Four style. I needed some chopping of logs and some running up the mountain and and the stuff that actually translates <laughs> to cinema. Training montage, I love it. <laughs> but I think the 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 movie is again asking how do how does Strange learn humility? And in some ways, he learns it by realizing that there's a whole bunch he doesn't know, uh, and that he has to learn it. And so. Being a student is, in some ways, a very humbling task. Uh, being faced with your own ignorance and your own finitude is humbling. Uh, but it's not ultimately the final teacher. The final teacher is this moment of sacrifice, which is perhaps I'm not worth the world. And I'm making that decision, right? Like I'm, Like, I'm going to stand in the breach here and sacrifice myself because I believe that there are more important things than me. Well, that, that's fascinating. I mean, the one, one last little point on that too, though, is the character Dr. Strange in the comic, he doesn't kind of arrive, meaning he, you know, as the story goes on over the last several decades, he's still low key, this egotistical kind of playboy who has several girlfriends over over the course of time and still wrestling with his own ego, not only as being like the chief surgeon, but now he's the sorcerer supreme, 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 kind of has to kind of wrestle with humility again and again and again and again, and, which again, I think is one of the cool things about most superheroes. Batman is still tormented by the death of his parents. You know, Iron Man is still trying to, to be generous with his, with his time and with, with everything and still has this kind of physical limitations the X-Men are still hated and feared because of who they are. And you never, with the exception of kind of Superman, even though he has his own kind of orphan story, they never arrive to perfection, um, which will always keep them from being fully messianic um, in, in the way that only Jesus, I think, can be uh, by some Christologies. Well, I, I think that's probably... All we can exhaust on this before we totally run out of ideas. But, uh, I, and that means, unfortunately, it's time where we have to say goodbye to Chaz. Chaz, thanks so much for being here and no. talking this movie with us. It has been so great. Yeah, it's I been great. Thanks, You man. guys are the best. This is the coolest thing. I, I love this Technicolor Jesus for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers, man. You guys are, are just so fresh and dope. And I, I'll see you in another dimension, man. I want to do the whole spell uh, thing. I'm sweet about it. Pond River Ocean Rain, it's coming out January. Y'all buy it, read it, enjoy. Thanks, Chaz. Okay, Matt. Now it's time for our last segment, 
It's called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude for the week? So, there's not really much of a genre of the, like, Advent movie. Like, there are lots of Christmas movies, but there are not, not a lot of Advent movies out there. But I've been uh, thinking of a kind of weird case lately, which is The Martian. The 2015 Ridley Scott movie about Matt Damon stranded on Mars. And I, I kind of preached on this yesterday, and I want to make a case for it as, a, as an Advent movie. I'm pretty happy with this illusion. Uh, so the, the, this movie is about waiting to be rescued, right? Matt Damon is stranded on Mars. Uh, his, his comrades have uh, fled the planet in a kind of freak accident. They think he's dead. He's not dead. Uh, it's a movie that's actually, in many ways, not a lot of big picture suspense. I mean, he's going to get rescued because this is Hollywood. But his waiting isn't... But not, not, not before he sciences the shit out of it. Right, exactly. Uh, but, but like the thing about his rescue is that it's not... His waiting isn't passive. Like This isn't waiting for Godot, right? He, he, while he waits, he has to deal with very specific, concrete, technical challenges. Like He has to find water. He has to find air. It's not a like, Star Wars-y thing where he has to fight intergalactic beings. He just has to like find warmth and shelter. And I, it's a good Calvinist. Yeah, I, I, I think... So I'm thinking that Advent kind of reminds us all that we're stranded and that we're waiting for rescue. Um, but that being stranded and, being, and waiting for rescue isn't a call to passivity. It's also a call to action. So we can't build a rocket ship and reach escape velocity. We can't get out on our own, but we can find oxygen we can find water we can find food more to the point we can make sure that everyone has water and food uh, in this kind of roundabout way it brings me a little bit to why we do this show this is kind of a meta thought for me and it's been bouncing around my head in the shadow of election and empire with like white power graffiti sprayed on churches and the the reality that like doing a show about movies and theology and lectionary seems kind of trivial and potentially insane. Uh, and then I was uh, Linda Holmes, who also hosts an inane pop culture podcast, but does it for NPR called Pop Culture Happy Hour. She talked a little bit about this on Twitter, and she actually used The Martian, and it made me super happy. So she says that, quote, Matt Damon didn't get back to Earth with potatoes, but he had to keep going, and sometimes potatoes helped. And so if you're feeling like you're trying to do hard things, please understand I get that art and laughing and books and breaks and breathing in and out with comedy and music are not the way back to earth on their own, but everybody needs potatoes. And he liked it better when he had ketchup. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of vibing with that. I mean, it's a little scary and I've never been more convinced of the necessity of the church's witness. And I've been in conversation with so many prophetic and energized and passionate clergy over the past month. And so many who are doing hard work and difficult times. And I, I have no illusions that our little show about movies is providing any real fuel for that work, which is the work of waiting and breathing and also the work of finding warmth and food for everyone. But maybe we at least have ketchup. And so that's, that's kind of my meta thought for what we're even doing here, Adam. Yeah, no, I, it makes a lot of sense to me trying to figure out why to do this in the wake of 2016, which has been pretty rough as a year. And thinking about your your Matt Damon, the Martian analogy, there's also waiting that's rest too. And I'm I'm aware 
that Sabbath is also a really valuable part of this. And, um, and, and a vision of Sabbath that involves conversation that is wide ranging and grows out of some organic place of deep love and attraction to art and film and other things like that is a part of Sabbath. You know, I've been in, um, in Jewish homes of, of on Shabbat. And part of what I love is that many of them will have a, a bookshelf directly next to the, the table. And it's because if someone has a question, well, you pull out the encyclopedia and you look it up and that's part of the chef, the, the, the Sabbath practice, which is, you know, you commune with each other around questions and ideas and that's part of the rest. It's not that you just refrain from all conversation, but that you allow your conversation to not have some sort of immediate utilitarian value. Yeah. Cool. What about you, Adam? What's, what's all your posted for today? Uh, so I heard Christmas carols for the, um, the first time about the week before Thanksgiving, which means that it's creeping ever closer to Halloween. Um, and that Christmas as a season of, uh, of in our American culture is slowly going to eat all other seasons. Uh, and yet it always strikes me when I start hearing Christian hymns sung in department stores. Right. And, um, and so I've been thinking about that and I want to encourage people to live into some of the theological weight of these hymns, because some of them are really quite brilliant and belong outside of the Christmas season. That the theology is big enough that it can show up in other seasons of the church's life. Um, I was at a church service yesterday and we sang Christmas carols and, and Christmas hymns. And part of me was annoyed by this because it's Advent. And, you know, I'm, I like my litur my liturgical seasons to be uh, specific, but I was also recognizing that there the decision to sing these was born out of this idea that we don't get to sing them very often, and I want to change that. I think that some of these uh, some of these hymns belong in other seasons, and one in particular or two in particular that have been weighing on me. The first is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. As an Advent hymn, it's totally standard and perhaps the best. Uh, and so O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is brilliant in its ideas of waiting. And yet I think it can hold all sorts of Lenten uh, weight as well as, uh, as a moment of penitential thinking and reasoning and living into that for a little while in another season would be really valuable. The other line from an Advent or a Christmas hymn that stops me dead every time I hear it is um, from uh, O Come All Ye Faithful. And it's the line, word of the Father now in flesh appearing. It's one of the most theologically dense and rich lines of a Christmas hymn that I can think of. And I wonder what it would look like to think about that line in places other than just the Advent season. 
word of the Father now in flesh appearing. What does it mean as, for us as preachers, especially, to think more intentionally about incarnation, about our theology of the word, capital W. Um, it has a Trinitarian uh, gloss to it as well. That would be really valuable. Um, I just, I'm just aware that some of these songs really do hold up longer than just the Advent and Christmas season. And so while I am annoyed by the creep of the Christmas season into my life, I am also hopeful that some of these songs can sort of escape the, the season itself and move into other times. Can you open, like, across the street from one of those year-round Christmas shops, can you open a year-round Christmas chapel <laughs> where it's just every Sunday is, is Advent 4 or Christmas Eve and all, and all we're doing is reading Luke 2 and singing um, Angels We Have Heard on High over and over again? There's, a, there's Santa's Village, which is a thing right. in the mountains of California. I think there's one in, uh, in Maine, too. Uh, and it's open year-round, yeah. and it's like a theme park centered around Christmas, you could just open the, the yeah, chapel. chapel across the street. Yeah, you could, do, you could make a killing just on weddings. I mean, you just have your Christmas-themed <laughs> wedding in July. It would be, it would be amazing. It would be brilliant. Yeah. It would be brilliant. Yeah, you know, it's have a bunch of Advent candles for every week. Right, absolutely. Just one, like, 52-week Advent wreath. <laughs> All right. I, I think that probably about wraps it up for this episode, but we are not quite done yet. Uh, next time we get together, Adam, we're going to have to talk to each other. Uh-oh. We, we, got, we got no guests. We just got a lot of Christmas to do, Adam. What are we doing? We're going to talk about Christmas movies. Uh, we're going we're gonna to mess with the structure slightly. And Matt and I are going to bring in some of our favorite Christmas movies, scenes, and ideas. And we're going to try and figure out how do we make sense of this strange genre of movies that is the Christmas movie from our place as as pastors and theologians and or pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers, as Chaz likes to say. Hey, he likes our flow, man. Don't knock it. I know. That's the first time anyone's ever told me that they like my flow. Man. Probably the last, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, folks. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. Every little bit helps other folks find the show. Thanks, Adam. See you next time. Thanks, Matt.